Hey there, CNFers. Hope you're having a CNF in good week. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction, leaders in the world of personal essay, memoir, narrative journalism, documentary film, and radio, and try to tease out origins, habits, and routines so that you can use some of their tools of mastery and apply it to your own work. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara, and today's guest was the runner-up in Creative Nonfiction's Science and Religion Contest from issue 65. It's Jamie Zaversden, and her essay, Shuddering Before the Beautiful, Trains of Thought Across the Mormon Cosmos, details Jamie's conflict with the Mormon Church and her ultimate break from it, but doing so in a very empathetic way. There's no vindictiveness in this story. She just lays it all out there, so we dig into that a bit. You can also go back a couple episodes to hear Rachel Wilkinson, the winner of this contest, talk about her essay, Search History. But this is about Jamie, and in this episode, you'll also learn her fragment heaven and graveyard hell. What is that? How she's really analog when it comes to scheduling, her addiction to learning, and lots of influential books and writers. And you know what? I think it was Tom Petty, the late, great Tom Petty who said, don't bore us, get to the chorus. So here's my conversation with the great Jamie Zaversden. Enjoy. What am I reading these days? So um, I teach uh, at Johns Hopkins, and so that requires a lot of of reading. Um, So right now we're doing um, the best American science and nature writing. Um, so that's, that's what I'm currently reading. If you ask me what I want to read, (laughs) that's, that's another story. There's just too much. I came a little late to the game and I have a lot to catch up on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's, uh, reading the best American collections is so great for, for anybody, for a number of reasons, especially, um, well, for one to read, to read great writing, but also it it lets people who are looking to like pitch stories to various publications, even notable selections, you'll see the publication be like, oh, they're publishing this kind of work. So it's like mm-hmm. this is, mm-hmm. you can walk away a from just learning about about a hundred new people, and then maybe as many as fifty other magazines and stuff that are publishing that kind of work that you would hopefully like to get published so it's like such a valuable resource and it comes out every single year it absolutely does i'm i've been really grateful for that um part of the reason i came late to the game is that i wasn't writing nonfiction. <laughs> i wasn't writing at all i started out as an editor and i did technical editing and newspaper editing uh for a company in europe and 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 so I wasn't around to to sort of know what was happening. We we've lived. My husband works for the State Department, and so we've moved from country to country to country, and that has caused a kind of isolation that has actually been um, very fruitful for me because it's it's caused me to take a step back from American culture and my own culture that I grew up with in Utah 
and it it's sort of broke me <laughs> in good broken me in good ways. And do you some people who who are who are editors have a particular editor brain and they appreciate writing but they they like to be more of the the coach to coach up writing. And um you know you say you're late to the game as a writer. Um so what did what was it about the writing that like kind of um that kept pulling at you? And um, not that not that the editor brain ever leaves, but what made you want to be sort of maybe on the other side of the ta- uh, other side of the the craft? When I was a little girl, I wanted to be uh, an astronaut and a writer, and I didn't give myself permission to do either of those things. While I, uh, but what I did do was I kept some pretty intense journals. So I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. A lot of them were religious based. Like I, I talk about in this essay, um, um, I'm sort of like Newton and thinking that, you know, if I copied down verses from the Bible, that, that something new would come out. So it was, it was that sort of writing. And then I had the editing, but then when we lived in the Marshall islands, uh, as one of our posts in the foreign service, I remember hearing about the National Novel Writing Contest for the first time, and I gave myself permission to write. And that, it was like a dam broke. It was a pretty remarkable feeling. Oh, that's great. That's a great way of putting it, too, that, you know, you had this this congestion, if you will, and like it, <laughs> and it really allowed you to, to pursue that. And what, what came out of that experience? A really crappy novel, <laughs> first of all. But then I I had started to question some things about my religion and I I was I wanted to explore those things in writing. And so from that came an anthology, um, Fresh Courage Take New Directions by Mormon Women. And I, I asked a few other friends if, if they wanted to write about their experiences as women, Mormon women, and that blossomed into this beautiful book <laughs> that was published in 2015. And I, I've, I, I credit the Marshall Islands with that, with being so isolated that I, I had to step back and see the world anew. So. And uh, you used the word permission uh, like a couple minutes ago, and that's so important when doing any uh, creative endeavor that so often uh, people feel handcuffed that they're not allowed to do it and that they need or the the people that, that do this kind of work or write these kind of things, like they've been anointed in some way. To, <laughs> to do it and they just appear and they don't realize that there's a lot of work to it and that if you really really want to really want to do it you really only have to start somehow but it's sometimes it's really hard to start so what was that realization like when you finally did give yourself the permission and then you actually took up the pen from there and ran with it um i so i i had a blog where i'd write about our adventures in the foreign service and it became pretty popular to the extent that uh, my husband would go to these conferences and people, random people would come up to him and they'd say, oh, I read your wife's blog. How's your son doing? <laughs> and, and that got a little unnerving for us. So we took it private. 
especially because um, we had a lot of readers from China and Russia suddenly. <laughs> so, but I was like, you know, and, and the blog died as soon as I took a private, but I was like, you know, I could do this. I could write. Um, and then, and then I started looking at programs at writing programs. And I think that that was sort of the, the turning point for me of saying, you know what, I'm a great editor, but I would love to write. And so then I um, got my MFA from Bennington College, and I did that while we were at our next post in Montreal. Uh, we were actually uh, supposed to go to Tunisia, but just a couple months before we were slated to go, Arab Spring happened, and some people burned down the school that my son would have gone to oh, <laughs> there in Tunis. And so they rerouted us to Montreal and Bennington is in Vermont. So it worked out better than I could have hoped. <laughs> so. right. Wow. And, and so what was it about um, telling true stories or writing essays that appealed to your taste maybe uh, more than fiction. Not that maybe you've ad abandoned fiction, but at least the, the what's kind of brought us together today is the fact that you've written some nonfiction and you have that essay anthology. So what was it about true stories that really appealed to your taste? Nicaragua has sort of their, their most celebrated poet. His name is uh, Ruben Darío. And I think my answer to that question could definitely be summed up in... in um, one of the things that Ruben Darío said, he said, uh, por eso ser sincero es ser potente, um, which is to be sincere is to be powerful. And I think creative nonfiction allows me to do that, is to be sincere. I, I love the feeling of um, sharing my adventures in ways that are meaningful to my reader who may not have a, have had the chance to be you know, in a native canoe on the, you know, on the ocean in the Marshall Islands or, you know, going to the market and buying an iguana to eat for, you know, here in Nicaragua. Those are pretty, pretty wild, true stories that, that happen. And I think sharing those kinds of things opens up our world. And that's, that's the thing I love about nonfiction. Do you find that because there, there are some people who who take the other other side and be like, all right, I've got these these cool experiences, and I can like really sort of dress them up or you know take it into a, an imaginative direction that that is pure fiction. Um, have you ever had the experience that if you've ever felt pulled by fiction, that nonfiction tugs you right back and just be like, it's just so much more interesting to me if I just make it you know, a verifiably true story versus trying to amp it up with made up stuff? Yeah. So I was in the fiction track at Bennington College and I did a crossover term to nonfiction uh, with Sven Burkert's and I just loved it. And it, <laughs> I remember writing a story, a fiction story about my grandma. I had turned it into fiction and um, her cows had gotten sick and and started dying in the field. And she, as a little girl, had to go and save them. 
And so I wrote it as fiction. And then I was like, why? <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> why am I? Um, so I, I do keep feeling pulled back to nonfiction um, because I've heard so many true stories that just don't quite translate in the same way into a fictional story. So I know what you mean. Like it almost feels, uh, this is, it sounds so stupid on its surface, but like the, it's the only way I can articulate it is that what, if I, I love reading fiction, I, I respect the people who do it. Um, but when I do it, it just feels too fake. Does that like make <laughs> any sense to you? Yeah, it does. So I do not like to be manipulated. Um, and we all do it to each other. I know we do, but I, I feel sometimes when I'm reading fiction that my emotions are being manipulated too much. And I think true stories cut down on, on that, um, ability to manipulate. I, I, it still happens, of course, depending on the tone that you take and the word choice and all of that. But I don't, I don't feel as whipped about emotionally while I'm reading nonfiction. The other thing that I like about nonfiction is the ability to incorporate um, true facts about the world. So my uh, cup of tea, cup of coffee um, <laughs> here, here in Nicaragua, the coffee is phenomenal. So my cup of coffee is, um, science writing. So I, I, I love Andrea Barrett's work. And so she writes true science facts into her fiction. And I love that idea, but I also love just the straight up. Here's the science. Here's what people are making of it. Um, and I love to, to weave the story and the science together. And I, I feel like science is so much better remembered when it is not padded, but when it's interwoven with story in beautiful, meaningful ways. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That's where uh, something like um, you know the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks and other right. other you know things that have this grounding of really sometimes esoteric science, but that human element to it it, it pulls you in. You see, it can be expository in a way that doesn't you know dry your eyeballs out and put you to sleep but it's got some heart to it that pulls you right along through the whole story absolutely there's also um so some of my favorites have been amy ellis nuts um becoming nicole about transgender issues um and there's this very compelling honest story um that's incorporated with with or that's interwoven with biology facts. And I learned so much. Uh, I feel like I try to be aware of issues, but boy, I just, it's wonderful to keep learning like that. There's also um, Oliver Sacks um, hallucinations where you can't help but see the story behind, you know, someone who hears voices and, uh, but then suddenly they're not there, you know? Um, I can I can put myself in their shoes, but then also understand what is happening. And I, I feel like that is um, a really powerful, powerful way to learn the science. And you've mentioned a, a couple writers there, you know, 
Sachs and Andrea Barrett and among others. Um, who are some of the ones that you that you find yourself going back to over and over again to kind of remind you of like, oh yeah, that's how it's done. I'll be honest. I love these sorts of um, science nonfiction books that are funny because uh, I think humor is another element that helps us remember the science um, and that can help, you know, with um, science communication. So Bill Bryson, uh, his A Short History of Nearly Everything is so funny, so well done. And the way he uses metaphors and pacing, everything, everything uh, is so good. Mary Roach is another one. She's got um, grunt and bonk and gulp and stiff. They're, they're way easy to remember. I love it. <laughs> but she, I, I would never, ever pick up a book to read about military science if it weren't for her humor. That's what grunt is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm grateful. For, I don't know that I have that same ability as, as Bryson and, and Roach, but but I sure love to read them, and I, I keep going back to them. You know, I, I bet there is, there are elements of your of your writing as. Uh, it, but granted, the the only uh, the only sample size I have is this uh, this creative nonfiction essay. But you know, you did have the, this you know this great sentence that you know, partway through it, where you you had begun to consider black holes and boys were not mutually exclusive topics <laughs> of interest after all. And so, you know, there I think there are moments there where you've got you've got the humor chops that you can help uh, help pull you through some something to use that as a as a device to get your message across. <laughs> I love reading stuff like that. I'd I'd love to to write more of that. There was, so for the final graduate lecture at Bennington that we had to do, um, I did mine on science and literature, and it ended up being a piece for the Kenyon Review, who was doing um, an issue on the poetics of science. Amazing issue. I loved it. And so they... um, they took my modified lecture and had a bunch of people respond to it um, online, which was amazing, including um, I just just a whole bunch of wonderful people. Um, but I, I think my favorite part of writing that was I talk about a pseudoscience and how there's been this rebirth of pseudoscience uh, in society and that good science communication is necessary to sort of stem off this trend. And there's so many different kinds of, of pseudoscience. I, I've got friends in Utah who have have their crystals and their essential oils. And I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's hard to hear about that because I'm like, guys, stop it. Um but I think my favorite kind of pseudoscience that I wrote about in the Kenyan Review was something called rumpology. Have you heard of this? <laughs> I have not at all. Please tell me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so it's like palm reading, but on the ass. <laughs> and so for like 250 bucks, you send a picture of your butt to a rumpologist and they will let you know your past, present and future. There are people who do this. 
Yeah. And, and so I, I want to dig into the psyche of people who believe these things, like who, who place trust and faith and money in, in these schemes. So that's a, a favorite topic of mine that I'd love to write more about. And there's ample, but like, even though there's ample opportunity for humor there, I don't ever want to shame people. And that's what I tried. uh, That's what I tried to do in the shuddering before the beautiful essay is I love my Mormon people, even though I no longer identify as Mormon. Um, And I wanted the article to be fair uh, to them. And so I, I had some Mormon friends read it and I modified it so that it wouldn't come off as, as harsh as, as unfair, um, but still true and still true to how I felt. Um, and, and I think that is the key to, to what sort of ails us as a society right now, um, where we've broken off into tribes. Um, no one will listen to me if they don't consider me a part of their tribe Mm. and, and, you know, slinging, insults and and that just that just um kicks you out of the tribe real fast so i i don't want to approach writing about pseudoscience in a way that's alienating i think that's really important right because uh, you know people it, it sounds you know ludicrous on its surface but what if someone maybe it's their it's their Hail Mary. It's their last effort. Um, and maybe maybe there's some placebo effect that might actually help someone. You know, they're in an act of desperation to, like, find any sort of answer, right? you know, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the context is. And, you know, who would we be to discredit that if it somehow worked f- for them in their moment of desperation? So it's exactly like you're saying, like, try not to alienate that person and come at it with some empathy, even though on its surface it's, it's ludicrous. But maybe for someone it's exactly what they need at that particular moment in their lives. I, I just had this conversation with some friends, and the issue for me with the placebo effect is, is we should know more about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That, that even though something may be a placebo, um, it's, it's fine if people know that it's a placebo, <laughs> um, because, because what happens, what ends up happening is people invest a lot of money and that, that placebo effect doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the same with some religions, you know, you may turn to a religion and they say, you know, follow these steps and you will be happy. That doesn't work for everybody. And, and for people who invest so much in, in that, um, that remedy that can be really hard for the people it doesn't work for. So I I think we as a society can acknowledge the power of, of those placebo elements, but also be a little more skeptical too, so that we don't get ripped off. As you were, well, one of the things that you said that struck me uh, when we were emailing to set up this conversation was um, to talk about your, your essay here, that you pretty much wrote this in a, in a quick fit 
pretty much, I don't know, was it about a week you wrote this? Yeah, like it all came together in a week. Wow. And this uh, is a pretty long essay, too. So um, I wonder, all right, so like, let's you know, take me through that, that process about how you, um, how you came, came to this essay and then subsequently just like, really hammered it out so so quickly because a lot of people to write can work on essays for years and and get their stuff turned down by creative nonfiction. it's just great to hear that you hustled and just you know put out such a beautiful piece of work and and, to, and that it, and there's a runner-up in the contest and you and you wrote it in a week so yeah let's let's kind of unpack that process a bit sure i've i've been thinking about it myself uh because it so I did write it in a week, but at the same time, I didn't write it in a week. I'd written it in my head over a lifetime, and and that damn just burst. <laughs> uh, I had two two friends from graduate school who both emailed me separately, and they said, "This you have to enter this contest. It's a science and religion contest. You better do it or else." <laughs> and and I'm really grateful for that writing community who you know they knew me well enough to to reach out and say hey i think you i think this would be good for you i had written some things for graduate school just like pieces of here and there about you know about leaving mormonism dealing with it dealing with the fallout coming to a better place that sort of thing but not not it's it pieces, right? Um, and I looked over my old Scrivener file, and there's a a, um, a thread called brainstorming, and it just has little bits of of some stuff that made it into the final essay, and like the final final essay, and some some stuff that didn't. Um, so these things that were sort of percolating for a long time, but then. Once I sort of had a goal and a deadline, <laughs> deadlines are great. Um, I get into these modes. I, I'm a very distracted person. I'm not a good reader, actually. I'm a great editor, but I'm not a good reader for fun. And so I have to get into the flow or whatever. Um, and so I, you know, I come in, I sit myself down in my office um, I've got bars on the, <laughs> I live in Managua and I've got bars in the, on my window. I've got, um, barbed wire around the perimeter of my house. I have a 24 hour guard. So I feel like <laughs> really barricaded in, but then like you just pour out what's in your head onto the page and you don't care if it's a shitty first draft or not. You just pour it all down onto the page and then, and then work through it um, with the editing. And I like after holding it all in for so many years, it just feels so healthy. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so yeah, pieces of it had been in my mind and I tried writing about it in different ways, but this particular contest with creative nonfiction and, and in collaboration with issues in science and technology, um, was about finding commonalities between science and religion. So that was an additional challenge for me um, since I had left Mormonism. And I, 
I don't, I knew that I had written something good, but I didn't know if they'd like it because, you know, it was funded by a, a religious organization, the, the contest. And I didn't know if they would be okay with an ex Mormon atheist, uh, publishing with them. And again, I feel it goes back to empathy. Like even though you may not consider yourself part of someone's tribe anymore, you can still put yourself back in their shoes. And so I was able to write about the interplay of science and religion in positive ways. Uh, even though ultimately I left religion. Um, and I think that's a, a, it needs to happen more often. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could speak their language too, which which really helps them probably, right? Yes, <laughs> that's true. So what was a, a, a pivotal moment for you in the, uh, in, in the sort of the narrative or the story of this piece um, when you began to start to, to question um, sort of your role in in the church and started to push against that as you were start as you were starting to explore so uh, you know the cosmos really so what was that mm-hmm. moment like when you in that sort of uh, that tug of war you were probably dealing with well so it happened in the Marshall Islands that was that same period of time and as soon as i gave myself permission to look outside of the sources I'd been told to look at only, um, that's when I was able to write. Um, and I, I think the two are connected in that I allowed myself to learn things that I didn't allow myself to learn about before. There are significant issues in, in the church's history that do need to be addressed. And I, I had always struggled with the idea of polygamy and polyandry. I don't need to get into the, specific, the specifics of all that, but I, it had always bothered me. And finally, I allowed myself to acknowledge that and to say, look, this really bothers me. Um, it upsets me to think that, that there's a God who would, who would do this to women and none of the just my my prior justifications held up any longer. So permissions, everything, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, what was the experience like writing this piece? You know, you said it was like the dam broke and it, it just kind of poured out. But uh, and um, and I I suspect very cathartic. Uh, writing can be very cathartic and therapeutic, but also ultimately you do have to somehow distill it down for 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 a reader. So um, how did you transform something that was, you know, cathartic and therapeutic and good for you to write, but then right. ultimately good for somebody to then consume on the other end? Part of it was the purpose of the essay. Um, so I couldn't just be like, I had a horrible experience. That's why I left the end, you know? Um, <laughs> and that's not true either because – there were many parts of growing up as a Mormon that were very positive. And for example, in the essay, um, 
I talk about my experience as a missionary for the church. I went to Toronto for a year and a half and I was assigned as a Spanish speaking missionary. So I learned Spanish, which has been very helpful um, in my life. And there was this one uh, particular experience that just sort of shook me to the core. And we were knocking doors and, and we had started, you know, I mean, I was one of those missionaries with the name tags, (laughs) Mm. um, and started talking to some kids in a driveway and the mother came out just screaming at us and said, get off my property. I'm a proper Christian. And it hurt. And, and I turned away in tears and a Muslim man who had seen this whole thing happen, he came over to us and he said, come and have dinner with me and my family, which we did. And they didn't want what we were offering. Um, but that was a kind of kindness that I will not forget. And so it's those moments of truth with the capital T that I feel are worth sharing um, to any audience. So that transcends me and and my personal experience with the Mormon church. And I can I can give plenty of other great stories of, of positive things to help, I don't know, like it, the act of writing is not necessarily an act of persuasion, but an act of um, connecting that I find is very meaningful. And so, yes, my first draft may be for me. And to a degree, it should always be for me, I think. Um, There's so many different kinds of audiences in this world, and you're never going to reach them all. (laughs) And so you do need to write for you to a certain extent. Um, Last semester at Johns Hopkins, I taught the prize winners course. So it was sort of a literature overview of some great prize winning science writers. And I did sort of a, a survey of who liked what in my classes. And it was all across the board. Some loved John McPhee, some hated him. Um, Some loved Isabel Wilkerson's um, The Warmth of Other Suns, and some didn't. Um, So there's, there's always going to be someone who likes your writing and someone who doesn't. And I think that's okay to acknowledge. And it's okay to write specifically for that audience, um, which, and that audience includes yourself. I, I want to like my writing too. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you identify as your ideal reader? Good question. Those who like to learn. And, And that includes me. I love to learn. Um, I don't want to be content with what I know. I, there's so many wonderful things to learn out there. Um, and, and that is the type of learning that I don't always get in fiction. And I've been able to find it in nonfiction. So. With so many things to learn, how do you keep from getting overwhelmed by it all? In writing or reading or life? <laughs> well, let's, let's go with, um, I guess like writing and, and of course, 
you know, it, as as writers, you most most of the things we learn, we try to filter and actually end up writing about it anyway. So I, in m- most cases, it's kind of with me. If something really uh, resonates with me, or I get obsessed with something, it's usually with the idea. I'm usually not just content to learn it. I want to like learn it and then write about it through my own sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want I so I guess maybe maybe life and and writing um, mm-hmm. for you. Like how do you like do do you also like piggybacking on that, do you get like really obsessed with one thing and then just like dive in whole hog? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The answer is yes to that. Um, <laughs> there are. Okay. So my particular love is astronomy and physics. So I've carved out a niche for myself in my writing that I primarily like to focus on it. That's not exclusive. I would say generally I like science and so, um, science and religion, science and literature, science and physics, um, science and sociology, that sort of combination is what I find fascinating. So I've narrowed down my focus in my writing last year, um, was a pretty productive year for me writing wise. Again, a lot of it comes back to permission for me because mm-hmm. um, I didn't feel like I had that permission for so long. It's a really beautiful feeling. And and so I'm I'm just feeling I'm just getting the, the, the fruits of my labors this year. So later this month, uh, Consequence magazine is publishing an essay. I wrote I tried writing for two years <laughs> And finally, was able to write it in the last week before it was due. Just deadline, <laughs> right? It, that's, it really does help me. But again, I'd been thinking about it for two years, and then was able to sort of blast it all out. For that, I interviewed Dora Maria Tellez. She is a former Sandinista commander who took the National Palace hostage in 1978. So I interviewed her. Um, and I interviewed, uh, one of her hostages and, um, I interviewed, a, there was a very sad instance last August where there was a woman whose husband decapitated her and, and buried her head. And I interviewed the family and it's just, it's a heartbreaking story the essay is called On the Revolution of Revolutions, Nicaraguan Women After War. So that'll be out later this month. And then next month, Creative Nonfiction is publishing uh, Makeup of a Monster for their Dangerous Creations issue, which is about my feelings about makeup uh-huh. <laughs> and beautification, but also the makeup of Boris Karloff in the Frankenstein movie. So it combines or it, it compares beautification makeup with monster makeup. Oh. It was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I'm working on a piece for the Atlantic. What's that about? That is about my interaction with the man who stole the moon rocks from NASA back in 2002. He was a mentor to me. And so it's sort of about our overlapping timelines. Um, But like in all of these things that, that are coming out, a lot of it is build up. I mean, I've thought about these things for a long time. 
and then it's just letting myself pour it out onto the page and then, and then turn the editing mind back on and, and editing it, uh, and then giving myself permission to submit it. That that's another kind of permission I've had to give myself of, Hey, this is good enough. Get it out there. Hmm. Um, so I, I definitely recommend <laughs> trusting oneself enough as a writer to move forward. Um, that's been a really helpful thing for me in, in all of this. And some of these pieces, the, the Atlantic article, for instance, I, I wrote in one night. Um, and it just, it, maybe that's crazy, <laughs> but even like, I, I'll just sit down and I won't stop. Um, it's a little bit freaky. <laughs> I, I don't even need coffee. Like it'll just, it just comes pouring out. And I know that, that that doesn't happen with everybody. Everybody has their own process and that's, that's totally fine. Um, and whatever that process is, you can give yourself permission to have that process. Right. Of course. So how do you, uh, with such a string of, of, successes here how are you parlaying that momentum forward so you don't rest on your laurels and uh, or don't fall into um a slump or try to at least um keep a slump at bay or box it out in some way because you know there are ebbs and flows to any mm-hmm, writer mm-hmm. and freelancing and, and so forth but um how are you trying to bottle that momentum so you can you know keep doing this kind of work and sustain yourself you know like artistically financially and so forth i love this question brendan i think this is such a great question because uh, there there are ebbs and flows um I had such an ebb for so long <laughs> that, that yes, there's sort of a tsunami going on right now um, of, of just finally being able to freely speak my mind about things. Um, and I, I think patience with myself is, is a big thing. I'm a very impatient person. And I have all these things that I want to do. And, and I think pacing myself with patience, um, through the projects that I want to do. One thing that I've done that has centered me is I take a Scrivener file and I call it fragment heaven. Um, (laughs) and I also have a graveyard hell. (laughs) So, But uh, in that file, I have a bajillion little threads. And every time I'm running on the treadmill and something comes to me, I write it down on an index card and uh, then I later write it into this big file. I, I think technology is wonderful, but it has also made us be a little scattered in in our organization process. And so I like having one place where I can put all of my little fragments. And then those fragments, like with what happened before with uh, Shuddering Before the Beautiful, those fragments sort of build and I, I'm thinking about them and and then comes a deadline <laughs> of, of something that I want to 
um, submit to, and then I can pull out that file, look through these bits um, that have been percolating, and and then bring it together. Of course, with a lot of good research and good sources and and that sort of thing too. How did you you know you've spoken a lot about permission and and uh, really uh, in a sense courage uh, piggybacking off of that and I wonder where you learned um, how to trust yourself and to trust your abilities and to be less fearful when it comes to your work I think editing and being sort of a grammar freak <laughs> yeah. uh, is part of that confidence um, I took Latin in college and was a tutor for a while. And that familiarity with the English language helps cut down on some of the fear. Um, Because I know which words I'm using. Maybe they're not always correct, (laughs) but um, I have a general sense of what works and what doesn't and, you know, what is grammatically correct on (laughs) Or not? Yeah, like it, it feels like a, a good solid base. I was very fortunate to have some great teachers in the editing program at Brigham Young University. And uh, I even had one professor force us to read the entire Chicago Manual of Style from cover to cover. And that breeds confidence because <laughs> mm-hmm. I've read that thing. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I remember everything but I know where I can go if I need to look something up, you know, and that, and that's true for other, other parts of writing fear. Like I've, I've thought a lot about fear in general and a lot of fear is based for many writers in what other people will think about them. And sometimes it's a legitimate fear. I'm not going to discredit that. Um, I was really afraid what my parents and what my in-laws would think when Shuddering Before the Beautiful came out. And I, I did want to be generous and thoughtful in the way that I told my truth. And I remember uh, I had printed out the final draft of Shuddering Before the Beautiful. Um, I was getting a bone taken out and staying with my in-laws in New York in September. And I, my father-in-law sat down to read it and I was really nervous. He's a man of science and I, I love him dearly. And he also loves the church. And I, I didn't want my writing to be taken lightly or dismissed. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. And so I was sort of nervously fluttering around and got distracted by something. And suddenly he came up and gave me the biggest hug. And he said, that was truly amazing. And I didn't realize you were a real writer. Which <laughs> <laughs> is funny. Um, but it was meaningful for him. And Writing across those boundaries is what I'm interested in. And so I, I succeeded and he, he said he, he felt like he knew me better. So even in, 
even though we have different viewpoints now on religion, like there's still that fundamental respect for each other and, um, and, and, and love. I, I, I think, I think the love overcomes the fear Mm. is what I'm saying. Yeah. And it appears you, you've developed for for your own self, a kind of a a writing practice that, that works for you. And, um, (laughs) and what does that look like? Whether that's, um, is it if whether it's something that you do like a very consistent thing every single day, you know, or you know, if you incorporate a certain morning routine, um, what is that? What does your practice look like to get you into the right headspace to do your reporting and your research and ultimately your writing and editing? I have uh, an exercise app on my phone, um, and its sort of motto is "It never gets easier; you just get better." And I, I love that sometimes because it's hard for me to, to focus once I'm in the flow, it's wonderful, but I have a hard time getting there and there's a, a few things I need to do to get there. And one of them is to get out some excess energy and anxiety or whatever. And so exercising for me in the morning is really important. I love the ritual of uh, grinding fresh coffee beans and making myself a cup of coffee. It just feels so writerly, (laughs) but because I couldn't drink coffee for so long as a Mormon, it's, it, it, it's even more endearing for some reason, um, to have a cup of coffee as I sit down to write and I don't need it to write, but, but I really like that. Um, it's the mug, I guess. It doesn't matter what's in the mug. Yeah. Um, I, I think taking care of myself physically is a big part of being able to focus. I get really distracted. Um, living in Nicaragua is not easy. There, uh, there are things about living here that make it a little more difficult to write than, than if I had, if I lived in the States, I was living, I was coexisting peacefully with some ants in my office and then they just decided to move in full force. (laughs) And, and so like I'd be writing and I'd have these ants crawling up my back. Um, and it was the worst feeling. So then I'd have to stop and try to kill as many as possible. I did try to coexist. I did. (laughs) But it's with insects, you guys, this is not possible. Uh, um, we also have um, a tarantula house. And so every year around the rainy season, Nicaragua has a dry season and a rainy season. We get these tarantula nests under our couches. So that needs to be taken care of. Um, we had bats in our attic that were causing um, they were scratch scratching above my ceiling. And so I couldn't write. <laughs> I had to take care of the bats. Um, and then we had an opossum die in our attic. And it, oh, it was just the worst mess. It's like it decomposed and it started falling through the ceiling onto oh. our heads. And so that had to be taken care of. There's all of these things that are... <laughs> that are time consuming that 
you know, just to sit down and write in my house, in my barricaded house. Um, so, the, and then I think scheduling is another big key for me. Um, I have a really great planner. It's, it's a physical planner. Um, I can't, I can't do the online planner. Yeah. Um, what kind of planner is it? It's, it's actually called the passion planner and it was a Kickstarter project, um, started by this young woman who didn't like any of the planners out there. And it has like a, um, a, a page for goals and a, and a monthly page. And then each week is broken down into uh, time slots. Um, but it also has room for brainstorming. So sometimes my little fragments go in there. Um, but I mean, between teaching for Johns Hopkins and I teach piano in the afternoons too, because oh, nice. writing is, you know, really lucrative. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm going to start teaching astronomy at a local university here um, next month. And so time, I mean, time is important to manage for me in order to be able to sit down and get into this writing mode Um and that's hard. That is definitely hard sometimes to have that balance. But like anything, I can get better better at scheduling. And and I don't believe in the muse. That's <laughs> that's one thing I do not believe in. I don't believe in ghosts or <laughs> an afterlife, and I don't believe in the muse. Um, and I'm sorry if that is really. Uh, I don't know, throws cold water over some people's writing experience. Um, but I, I believe in hard work. Um, so You echoed exactly what, was, what I was going to say. I was hoping you were going to say the work. And, like, that's what I believe in. It's just just get there and grind. And uh, <laughs> Rachel Wilkinson, who was the the gold medal to your silver medal in this mm-hmm. in this in this mm-hmm. contest like she says like if you if you can't learn to love the grind then basically you're screwed he's like <laughs> it's about the grind because it's got to be about the journey and when it comes to this because the end goal satisfaction just isn't going to be there and the muse whatever you want to call it inspiration isn't going to isn't going to strike you got to just get down to work and get words down and yep. And then give yourself something to mold. That's what it's about. That's absolutely true. In in addition to making sure we sit down in the chair, I'd also say to make sure we get outside and yes. talking to people. Uh, there was a Scientific American article that just came out, and we have a loneliness crisis. And part of the solution to that loneliness is social health and being able to get out, which allows you to also hear each other's stories and experience new things. Last night, um, I took a, a friend, a Mexican friend out for her birthday, um, with some other girlfriends and one was from Mexico. One was from Angola. Another was, uh, from the East coast. Another was from the West coast. Uh, of the states and one was from Nicaragua and and we all came from such different places it was a really beautiful thing and I I wouldn't experience that if I were just hunched over my computer you know um yeah it's it's a big reason why 
think about why comedians are such great storytellers. It's Mm -hmm. because they're out having a life. And then it's like what Whitney Cummings said, the comedian. It's like, um, uh, hopefully I don't butcher it. Like art can't imitate life unless you have a life. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. That's very, very true. And I mean, I, I gain a lot of inspiration from the outside things the outside adventures that I do, there's a lot of volcanoes here in Nicaragua and boy, I mean, looking down at active lava, if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what does. That's amazing. <laughs> Last week, um, I went to the zoo with my seven year old son. This is no ordinary zoo here in Nicaragua. <laughs> um, it costs about a dollar to get in. Um, and it is the quirkiest zoo. There's um, a lot of uh, tigers because they've saved them from circuses. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, the the cages are not the greatest. And they're not that safe either. You can like reach six inches forward above this retaining wall and touch the tiger, like just through the thin bars. It's right there. Um, but one, one part of the zoo that is really well maintained is the butterfly sanctuary. And I went in there with my son. Um, and I started talking to the woman who runs it and I I was watching, um, a, a chrysalis open And the owl butterfly was really struggling to get out and it looked like it was stuck. And I asked her what, what was happening. And she explained that sometimes their abdomens get stuck and they, they're, or the liquid that, um, that they need to open their wings, um, drips out or, um, or as soon as they come out, of the chrysalis, they, they fall instead of being able to hang on so that their wings dry out. And if that happens, then they're done for. And she said, there's a lot of death in the butterfly sanctuary. Mm. And, and while she was talking, I mean, it, it, it occurs to me that a lot of my writing is like that, that I have these, these pieces that, some of them make it and some of them don't, some of them die. Um, but not a lot of people know that, that the majority of a butterfly's life is spent in, in the chrysalis. And this is, I mean, (laughs) we can take this cliche metaphor and turn it into something a little deeper, right? That, that we don't, that not everything that we write will make it. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time for, for this creation process to happen. Um, the, the life of the actual butterfly, um, after it comes out is only a few weeks, but it might be in, in the, um, in the pupa stage for months. Mm. And, you know, (laughs) the, so I was thinking about this and, and how like the life of these butterflies, you know, as it, as it applies to my work is short, you know? Um, but then as we were leaving the sanctuary, my son was like, um, you've got a butterfly on your butt. (laughs) 
<laughs> Rumpol sent it to the rumpologist. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, <laughs> and and it had escaped with me, um, and it flew away before we could take it back. Uh, but I like to think that some of my work makes it out, you know, and and has <laughs> has that full lifespan. A lot of the older butterflies have broken ridges along the edges of the wings, so you could tell which ones were older. Um, and I liked that too. I, I often find myself going back to old, old fiction um, for inspiration for my creative nonfiction stuff. Uh, Do you have and, any examples? Yeah, The Great Gatsby. Oh, I, I read it every year. It's so good. Yeah. Um, and as an editor, I really am interested in stuff at the sentence level. Uh, so like taking apart a sentence from the great Gatsby is really fun for me to, to see what's happening at, at the sentence level and at the paragraph level. I just find that it's as much fun for me as my science research. (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's like, um, it's like the perfect memoir because it's it, it's about you know Nick, but he's looking out and there's another character sort of at the center mm-hmm. of this guy's memoir. So it's not like, even though it's a novel, you know, and not technically a memoir, it's like to me like that's the form of a mem- like the perfect memoir that it can be a first person narrator telling this story of something that's a bit uh, outside of him and how he's relating to that. And so it's, I, yeah, I just I come to it over and over again. Another one um, that I keep coming back to is something I read as a senior in high school. I had a great AP English teacher, just the most remarkable teacher. Um, And we read uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Um, And that's, that is an interesting one because it is Thomas Hardy writing about um, women and this unjust situation for Tess since she gets raped and, and like has this really tough life. Um, but I find as I reread that, that there's a sense of empathy that Thomas Hardy was able to achieve, even though he was not a woman, um, that I find very endearing and that I want to replicate in my nonfiction with my, with the people that I write about. Yeah, that is that, that I I love when you can find those models uh, across genres that help strengthen your nonfiction and they, it can come from fiction. It can come from documentary film or even feature film. And you're like, Oh, I see what they're doing. How can I, put that through my own nonfiction-y filter and elicit mm-hmm. that kind of mood using the tools that I want to use. Can I add uh, one more Please. book? Actually, um, I guess one more genre. Um, and this relates back to your question about fear and, and how I learned to overcome fear. I was really, you know, even though I had a really sheltered life growing up in Utah for I was really fortunate to find books that had strong female protagonists. So The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley 
Goose Girl by Shannon Hale. And then there was Quest for a Maid and Catherine Called Birdie. All of them had really, really strong female protagonists. And I related so much with them. And, you know, that those are texts that I keep going back to and rereading, not necessarily because they they inform me in in the same way that the Great Gatsby or, or Tess of D'Urbervilles do, but um, but it is a sense of like deep intrinsic power. And oh, Nancy Drew too, <laughs> <laughs> um, where where like there's always a chapter called trapped or kidnapped. <laughs> Or something like that. But I love those books. And they were about strong women who went on adventures. And I wanted to be one of those women. Um, and so I think that those books set the tone for for me and for my eventual, like, uh, cliche metaphor- metamorphosis. <laughs> you know? In, in a really beautiful way. So I... I I love encouraging kids to read those kinds of books. Um, if any of your listeners have daughters and sons, um, there is a site called Mighty Girl, and it has a wonderful list of of great solid books that that have the same sort of in. I, I almost want to call it magic mm. um, for all my talk of, of pseudoscience, but, um, <laughs> but there is a kind of magic in books that I, th- I think is remarkable and well worth sitting down to, to read, even though, <laughs> even though you may be a distracted person like I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Jamie, I, there's so much I want to get into. Um, but since you have another, another piece coming out soon um maybe we can have you back on for a part two in the in the following weeks or months and uh we can dig into some other things um but i want to be respectful of your time for this episode um and uh but if you're open for a round two i'd love to have you back on so we can dig into some other things absolutely it's been really fun i like duck and shop (laughs) nice i love it i love it too it's a big reason why i did it and you um brought up a point earlier like we live in an we're living in kind of lonely times and I had started this a few years ago to kind of combat my own loneliness as a, you know, mm-hmm. a f- freelance writer and just to have these conversations that I wasn't getting a chance to have in person because it's fairly isolating. So yes. you hit on a really good point and uh, being able to talk uh, and, prom- you know, and try to shed a little extra spotlight on uh, other people's work is a, uh, is a whole lot of fun. And uh, the essay you wrote is uh, masterful. It's beautiful. And uh, I can't Thank wait to you. read you're welcome. I can't wait to read your next work and then we'll, we'll get you back on the show shortly and we'll talk a little more. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm glad you're doing this. Um, I mean, cause it, it's, um, it may be helping you, but boy, like what a great resource yeah, for, I, I for think all of us. Great. Yeah. That's a, I love getting into the routine stuff and craft stuff. Cause if, if somebody, if somebody else out there listening can cherry pick, a little thing that they heard mm-hmm. from from you or from Susan Orlean or from Andre Debuse and be like, oh, that's a cool habit. I'm going to try that. And if it mm-hmm. makes if it strengthens them or gives them, like you were saying, a little extra ounce of permission, then that's a victory. Yeah. So, yep. And if if someone can't give themselves permission, 
Like, I give you that permission, you know? Yeah. Like, start there. Like, I give you permission. <laughs> you, you have it. And then and then work to to give yourself permission. I, I really love that. So thanks, Brendan. This was a lot of fun. Fantastic. A ton of fun for me, too. Thanks so much, Jamie, and we'll certainly be in touch. Cool. All right. See ya. Take care. Not too shabby, right? I dug it, and I hope you dug it, too. And if you made it this far, I ask that you kindly leave an honest rating, about five seconds, on iTunes, or a rating and a review, which takes about a minute, maybe less. All this does is it helps with the show's credibility, and it validates the whole enterprise, makes it a little more visible, too. So if you leave a review, I will kindly coach up and edit a piece of your own work of up to 2,000 words. Lots of people have been redeeming this, and it shows. There's a a bunch of wonderful, honest reviews and ratings, and um, that has a lot to do with uh, this little offer, and I'm happy, happy to do it. Uh, Based on how I would charge for my own editing services, if that's something you're into, if you like a dollar sign on something you're getting for just the review, it's about $100 worth of editing in exchange for that honest review. doesn't even have to be a great review. Candor is key. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter page. Go to Facebook and throw in Creative Nonfiction Podcast, and Twitter is at CNFPod. And you can always reach out to me on Twitter as well, at Brendan O'Mara. I also have this nifty monthly newsletter, maybe you've heard of it, where I send out my book recommendations and what you might have missed from the world of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. I'm going to start adding some other nonfiction-y things like doc film and essays I come across, so you have a little curated chunk of stuff to consider for the next month. Cherry pick what you like. Sign up at brendanomera.com once a month. No spam. Can't beat it. And you'd think after 85 episodes, I could force my wife into listening to the show, right? Permission's everything, man. (laughs) I didn't think so either. Thanks again. That's it for me. Have a CNF and great week, friends. Bye.